This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Tuesday, December 5th. New numbers show a spike in sexual assault rates within the Canadian Armed Forces. We'll speak to the general in charge of culture change about the crisis in the ranks. Plus, there is continued pressure on the House of Commons Speaker to resign over a video he recorded. How much could this delay the government's agenda? And the Premier of Yukon is in Ottawa. He supports the carbon tax, but he's also got some concerns to raise with the Prime Minister. Premier Ranj Pillay explains. We begin with disturbing new numbers on sexual assault within Canada's armed forces. Statistics Canada surveyed more than 18,000 members over three months, and nearly 2,000 of them reported they were sexually assaulted, either inside or outside the workplace in 2022, by another member of the military. That's roughly 3.5% of the members, more than double the rate reported in 2018. So how significant a setback is this in the years-long effort to clean up Canada's military culture? Here's Defence Minister Bill Blair's response. An increase in reporting is deeply concerning to us, but I think it can also be indicative of of perhaps greater confidence among victims that if they do come forward and and bring, bring, bring forward their complaints, that they will be taken seriously. That really is our greatest responsibility. Lieutenant General Jenny Carignan is the Canadian Armed Forces Chief of Professional Conduct and Culture. General, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me, David. So let's start with the numbers. The number of Armed Forces members who say they were assaulted by another member of the military has more than doubled between 2018 and 2022. Why is the number of assaults going up and not down? Yes, so David, we are uh, very concerned about those numbers and and that report, and uh, this definitely indicates that uh, the urgent work that we are doing in this space is very important and a priority for us, and uh, definitely informing uh, our work um, in a comprehensive way. So, um, again, very, very concerned about those numbers. But you, you, uh, you've, you've been in this role a little over two years now. I mean, what was your reaction when you saw that it seems to be going in the wrong direction? So what we need to do now that we have that report is uh, spend time to analyze the uh, and determine what they actually mean. Uh, in the case of uh, the increase in sexual assaults and in uh, sexualized behaviors, um, we understand that this can be both encouraging and at the same time a bad news, uh, meaning that it could mean an increase in awareness. People are more aware of what constitutes um, uh, mis- sexual misconducts mm-hmm. and being more familiar as to what to, to report. Uh, but at the same time, we want to eradicate uh, those misconducts within our teams. So we are uh, not at the point now when we, where we can actually determine exactly what this means and then want to conduct more analysis and bring this together with the research, uh, with the extensive research that we have, as, as well as with surveys, other types of surveys we have, and finally the external review uh, reports that we also have. So bringing all of this to together to, to have a better picture. But General, beyond the top line numbers, uh, there's some underlying things here that, that are pretty alarming as well. Most military members who said they experienced these assaults also said they did not report them to authorities, with the biggest reason behind this being that they, they believed it, 
it wouldn't make a difference. So we know uh, that uh, there are barriers to reporting. And reporting is a very personal and complex thing. Uh, so the dynamics behind uh, our folks deciding to come forward with complaints are complex and very personal. So we also see within the survey that uh, our members are, have clearly stated as well that um, even with new policies and processes in place and a safe environment, that they would still not come forward with complaints. So this illustrates um, barriers to reporting, which is why the approach we have taken over the last two years is come up uh, with a tailored approach to reporting, more victim-centric, mm. which means that victims have more agency as to how they want to report. Uh, so we have now created um, a space where victims can go directly to the Human Rights Commission. Um, we, have, we are repealing the duty to report, which also contributes to make it more, um, um, uh, more, more available in terms of reporting, as well as using a chain of command or a reporting to the police. So many, avenue, many options, many avenues for reporting. But, but you know, you hear uh, about things like a whisper ne network of people talking about their experiences, warning about bad actors, and, and you hear, here you have in the data, uh, among those who reported an assault, nearly two-thirds said they faced some sort of negative consequence either bullying or impacts on their career or further victim blaming. People are going to talk about this, and that becomes a barrier. I mean, what do you need to do to build trust in the system and remove consequences for people who have been wronged and, and come forward? This is absolutely um, what we are seeing as well via um, many other data that we have tracking. Uh, so removing, removing those barriers is, is part of the work we are doing. So working currently in um, overhauling our complaint system to make it more victim-centric, uh, but also removing uh, the barriers that people encounter at, at the people level as teams interact with each other. So it's, it's a, a work of uh, you know, addressing human dynamics, but at the same time addressing policies and procedures. But you've got, it sounds like you have bad actors who perpetrate assaults and then bad actors who punish people who complain about the assaults. I mean, that, that's not just procedural. That, this speaks to, I know we've talked a lot about cultural challenges inside the CAF, but this sort of thing um, seems like arguably your biggest impediment to fixing things if people are going to be punished for being hurt. And it's absolutely unacceptable. And uh, this is the part that we are doing in terms of prevention, um, increasing level of awareness on how to best receive complaints and how to best deal with this. What we also see in the survey um, is an increase of awareness. So the, clear, the, the survey also clearly indicates a raised awareness uh, amongst the majority of our members our members are also noticing um, a, uh, like a improvements over the course of their career and generally have a positive perception of their workplace. So there's indications of both um, mm. and then working at holding people accountable, 
um, and then working at removing those barriers uh, to, to reporting. I guess it's not just the, the number and the reporting issues, it's also who is, is being affected here. Obviously, they're underrepresented communities in the military. Obviously, women are, are a big part of this, but indigenous people, LGBTQ+, and people with, with disabilities. Uh, how, how do you improve the culture of the military? How do you deal with capacity challenges and recruitment challenges when these groups... Um, Obviously, finding it hard to serve safely and with dignity. Yes, and more vulnerable communities uh, within within our ranks. Um, we have uh, targeted um, initiatives to support uh, our folks that are from the various communities, uh, but also uh, working in the prevention space. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, incorporating training on professional conduct progressively across all ranks, across their full career, uh, to make sure that people are better aware, better understand um, what misconducts are about and what it looks like. We also need to understand that we are working against generations of normalized behavior, uh, things that we have historically, both in the society and in our institutions, have uh, adopted as kind of normal. Like and, what? Uh, like um, jokes or um, behaviors or in the way we are uh, exercising authority, the way we, we exercise leadership. So we are currently working at developing uh, different leadership styles than what we have normally seen in the military as well, via coaching, via professional development, and all of that. So this is part of addressing the people dynamics, because we could have the best policies, the best rules in place, if it doesn't rest within a culture that is um, welcoming and accepting, those policies won't take root. How much of it is alcohol and a culture of drinking in the military? Because, because fully one-third uh, of the members who say they were sexually assaulted in 2022, they blame it on substance abuse, namely booze. So we are seeing that uh, absolutely in case in one third of the case as per the survey, but we are also tracking this as part of our reporting systems uh, within um, within our organization, uh, where factor does contribute uh, to misconduct. Uh, so it's acting in the prevention space understanding that alcohol is not a way to build teams. It's not a mechanism by way to build teams. Um, nobody should feel pressure to drink alcohol in a social setting. Um, and also that there needs to be options presented to our members as we organize various events. What, what about bans from alcohol in, in certain places, certainly you know, on base or, or, or on mission? Uh, what, what about options like that? Because clearly, if the rate of sexual assaults are going up and one in three people who were assaulted say alcohol played a significant factor, and then if they report it, they, they, they face consequences, there is a, a cycle here mm. that needs to be broken at some point. And, and alcohol is definitely a place we are watching um, in the space of any types of uh, misconducts, per se. Um, there are uh, areas and contexts right now within the military uh, where alcohol is, is dry, where our forces are dry. That's, that's clear, and mm. there's, there's um, clear directions in that, in that space. Whether we are on operation or when people are on exercise, field, uh, field exercise, and so on. 
Uh, now, when we are talking in social settings, when we have social events, um, members of the military um, can live and work at the same place. This is a bit the nature of our mm -hmm. work as well. And we have to live by the law of our land and uh, making our people uh, responsible and accountable for their behavior. But you know, the, we, we talk about the military in, in three broad themes. I mean, outside of the, the, the great work people do responding to a natural disaster or what they did during COVID, we talk about equipment shortages, we talk about capacity shortages, and then we talk about this particular issue. And it feels like the capacity shortages in terms of recruitment can't be solved in a meaningful way until this is solved in a significant way. And when you look at these numbers, it looks to me like it's getting worse, not better. Do you see it that way? How do you think the public will see it when they see the, the top line numbers increasing at this rate? From our perspectives, uh, the approach that we are taking with, uh, with sexual misconducts and any other types of misconduct is we want to address it in a very transparent manner. Um, we are addressing it. We are engaged in, in uh, addressing it. Uh, we want to create safer, a safer workplace for our members to grow. do you think that's grow. happening? Do you think it's working? Uh, we are clearly seeing progress at the moment. We, are, we have been engaged with over 16,000 members of the defense team over the last two years, and we clearly see progress. People are reporting to us that uh, their leadership is handling uh, issues differently. Um, being more active in the prevention space as well, as well as um, focusing on victims' uh, support and then again on um, making sure that we modify our methods, uh, modernize our methods in training and growing people within our military. Lieutenant General Jenny Carignan, thank you for your time today. Thank you, David. Now we turn our attention to Gaza, where Israeli forces say they've launched their most intense ground operation yet, and Palestinians are running out of places to go. This is footage from outside a hospital today in Han Yunus. Israeli troops say they're now in the heart of the southern city after overnight bombing. They believe members of Hamas leadership are hiding out there. Thousands are fleeing the city to trek even further south as Israeli defense forces expand their offensive. But aid groups say Palestinians are running out of options. The only possible way to create safe spaces in Gaza that are truly safe, that protect human life, is for the hell to stop raining down from the sky. Only a ceasefire, only a ceasefire is going to save the children of Gaza right now. Hamas officials now say more than 16,000 Palestinians have been killed, including 7,000 children. That's since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, leaving 1,200 people dead, with dozens and dozens of hostages taken. Some of those hostages were freed during the humanitarian truce last week. Here is Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, on the situation. The resumption of violence is devastating. And the cycle of violence will not ensure Israel's long-term security. And the price of justice cannot be the suffering of all Palestinians. And so the violence must stop. 
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky was supposed to meet with American senators today to make an appeal for more military funding. The U.S. Senate is set to vote on emergency aid for Ukraine tomorrow, and the White House is warning without more military aid, there could be consequences for Ukraine on the battlefield. The CBC's Alex Panetta joins us now uh, from Washington. So, Alex, what is the status of funding for Ukraine, and just how dire is that situation on the battlefield? Yeah, so the package as is is not going to get through Congress. It could maybe potentially at best pass a Senate uh, vote, but it's not going to get through Congress. And, and, and the White House sounds increasingly desperate. Uh, for Ukraine, the U.S. says we're uh, out of money and we're almost out of time because uh, it says there's almost no U.S. assistance left, that funds approved by Congress uh, are now 97% spent. Uh, the rest runs out this month. And, and let's, let's be clear about what the stakes are here. For Ukraine, it's, it's dire. It's perhaps existential because it's gotten more military gear from the United States than from the rest of the world combined. Uh, by some calculations, over $60 billion uh, worth, uh, U.S. dollars worth. And if that assistance disappears, you know, I spoke to one military analyst here uh, who says the effects on the battlefield will just start to pile up. Uh, there are already isolated reports of Ukraine suffering from ammunition shortages. Now, uh, these are minor so far. But if the shortages worsen, uh, I'm told Ukraine's best case scenario is to just hold on and prevent, prevent you know, additional territorial losses. That's the best case scenario. Uh, and actually reclaiming territory, uh, that becomes virtually impossible. Yeah, I've seen reports of some of the advanced air defense systems they've gotten. They don't have enough ammunition for it, so they've had to stop using it. So the need is obviously very clear, Alex. I mean, what, what's holding up the, the passage of this aid bill? Yeah, and in short, the Republican Party, to be frank. Uh, Republicans control the House of Representatives, and Republicans are, are split on this Ukraine issue. Uh, many of their voters don't want another dime going to Kiev. Uh, they're hostile to it. And so the Republican leadership is saying to Democrats, fine, look, give us a concession. Give us something that you know uh, uh, in exchange for this. Uh, and there's the snag. Uh, because what Republicans want is a win, uh, uh, something they can show their voters, uh, something popular with Republicans, and that something is tougher measures at the border uh, to stop migration through Mexico. Uh, here's uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson, uh, who just sent a letter uh, to the White House demanding a border crackdown. When we go home to our town halls, they ask us a very important question. How can we be engaged in securing the border of foreign countries if we can't secure our own? And that is a question the White House has to help us answer. I've told this to the leaders in the Senate. I've told it to the White House, and I'll say it till we're blue in the face. We are committed to that. The battle is for the border. Now, there's something else Republicans want, and that's transparency on Ukraine. Uh, they say they want clarity from the Biden administration on questions like, what's the goal in Ukraine? What are we trying to achieve? How much, uh, how has the money been spent? Uh, so far, and and they want those answers in addition to this border package. So, so uh, that's the Republican position. What are the Democrats uh, saying about this? Yeah, well, so what they're saying is fine. We'll do something on the border, uh, but not what you're asking, because uh, they say the measures Republicans are pushing are way too radical, uh, certainly too radical to pass the Senate. Uh, the migration demands from Republicans are all punishment, no amnesty. We're talking about faster deportations, completing a border wall with Mexico, detaining and expelling migrant children and severely restricting asylum. Uh, Democrats are also annoyed uh, by what they see as shifting goalposts. They say that every time they make progress in these talks, Republican immigration demands suddenly get harder. Uh, today, the leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer, compared this to hostage-taking, and he fumed at the Republican Party. Let's have a listen. Ronald Reagan would be rolling in his grave, rolling in his grave, if he saw his own party let Vladimir Putin roll, roll through Europe. So once again, I urge 
my Republican colleagues to think carefully, be a, carefully about what's at stake with this week's vote. What we do now will reverberate across the world for years and decades to come. And history, history, will render harsh judgment. So uh, as for Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, you are correct, uh, David. He was supposed to speak by video to U.S. lawmakers in the Senate and the House. Uh, that appearance has been postponed. And now, like much of the rest of the Ukraine agenda in Congress, uh, that appearance is in limbo. All right, Alex, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Alex Panetta in Washington. Thank you. All right, now we're going to turn back to events here in Ottawa. The Yukon Premier is in the national capital for meetings with the federal ministers and the prime minister. You've been uh, uh, a, strong, uh, a strong partner on, on so many different ways of creating uh, stronger communities that it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to sit down with you and hear about uh, the priorities that uh, Yukon has. This comes after the Premier's recent trip to Europe to promote opportunities in the Yukon, specifically when it comes to critical minerals needed for the clean energy transition. Premier Rangpillay joins me now. Premier, it's good to see you in person. Thanks good for coming to see you. Thank you. Uh, you're here uh, with a lot of with a busy agenda here yeah. in Ottawa. But I want to start by asking you a little bit about the federal carbon tax and the controversy sure. about the carve out on home heating oil. I know yeah. you're a supporter of carbon pricing, mm -hmm. but you're disappointed with, with what the federal government did here. Did you raise this in your meeting with the prime minister? What did you say to him about it? Yeah, look, we, we've we were uncomfortable with the way the exception rolled out in Atlanta, Canada, just because you know as a as a, a province territory, we believe that there should have been a discussion uh, with all uh, partners across the country before that decision was made. It was a regional exception. Uh, we voiced that, but I mean, I'm looking now at uh, what they're uh, proposing in Atlantic Canada, which is this program on heat pumps. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the perspective of the Yukon is, okay, if that's the decision that's been made, um, we want to see a program that's similar. Uh, the North has been included now in this policy decision. So we're looking to see something that's going to work for the North. So it's a bit more expensive to install uh, heat pumps um, of course, in, yeah. in the North. And they're not going to be um, used to the same extent when we talk about the seasonality and the, the cold climate that we have. So we're looking for um, uh, more funds available for each individual who applies to that program. Um, and making sure that we can incentivize it to the right place to get them in place. Right. So, so the, the carve-out on home heating oil was a national carve-out, though. Yeah. I mean, it was driven largely by the politics of Atlantic Canada, to be very frank about yeah. it. Did, did that not apply uh, to Yukon uh, from the jump, in, in your understanding? Because I, 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 I don't know if there's a territorial exception to how the carbon tax is applied, no. but it was the heat pump you wanted extended, right? To yeah, I mean, look, we built a program um, as soon as um, the federal policy was, was unveiled. We yeah. built a program... Uh, that was a Yukon program uh, that was put in place. And it was really about making sure that the funds that were, um, that were taken in through the program were um, put back to Yukoners, the majority of Yukoners, of course, getting more um, of those funds in their pocket than they were spending. And so we believed in carbon pricing. And, uh, you know, it, has, um, it, it might be a, a lonely spot at this uh, particular <laughs> time. But the reality is, look, we're, we need to deal with what's happening. And yeah. in the Yukon, we're on the front lines of floods and fire. Uh, we see what's happening. And, you know, uh, politicians across this country can come in and say, um, in the future, there's going to be innovation. We're going to come up with something later. But the reality is we have to do something now. Right. And uh, the majority of Yukoners um, have stood behind um, that concept to make sure that we have to put the mechanisms in, mechanisms in place to deal with um, uh, the reductions that we need uh, off emissions, and we have to deal with climate price or climate crisis that's in front of us. So you're on the front line of, of fires and floods, as you say. Uh, mm -hmm. You're also on the front line of this next wave of innovation with critical minerals, yeah. potentially, and, and, and that 
there's a, there's enormous potential there yeah. in the north. Not a lot of capacity because of infrastructure deficits and things like that. Yeah. So, so what, what was your argument to the federal government for investments on that in the last couple of days? Well, look, I, I have to say that the partnership with the federal government over the last half a decade has been strong when it comes to investment in infrastructure. So, um, you know, the Yukon boasts um, real investment when it comes to um, our fiber uh, backbone right now, we're, we're building uh, almost an 800-kilometer fiber line, which will make sure there's redundancy uh, throughout all of northern Canada, which we don't have, and other circumpolar countries already have that infrastructure in place. Um, we're b- deploying significant money when it comes to roads um, and all-season roads to make sure we have access to projects. Um, and again, our, our airport, which is an international airport, and Whitehorse, we're seeing big investment there. Um, look, the first thing we say um, when, when we're on the road talking about critical mineral opportunities is you have to sit down with Yukon First Nation governments and make sure that you have a partnership there before you do anything. Right. Um, after that, uh, really, the conversation with Canada is focused on ensuring that we have the right clean energy to make sure that this opportunity doesn't pass us by. Um, you know, We're looking at a grid connection between uh, the Yukon and British Columbia, um, we're speaking with uh, folks at uh, Natural Resources Canada about that opportunity. Uh, the Yukon has a, an orphan grid. Um, we, you know, we produce about 90% of our power through hydroelectricity. It's clean energy. But when we, we look at what the opportunity is in front of us, we look at our projected demand uh, for electricity, we're in a position where we have to um, have uh, a bigger source. And really, at the end of the day, that's that's tying into the North American grid. So that's the discussion right now with Canada. Right. So intertice money, intertice. money, money for connections. Because if you're going to you know uh, mine these minerals yeah. for the green transition, you want to do it with clean energy. You don't exactly. want to use it with dirty energy and, exactly. and contribute to the problem you're trying to solve. Because you also you've made this pitch to Europe, right, suggesting political stability and, and economic stability on a recent yeah. trip there, the security of supply for the minerals. And, and I guess it really does come down to that capacity. That if you can get the money for the infrastructure and the money for the the energy supply, yeah. that's what could potentially unlock this for Yukon? Yeah, for the Yukon and for this country. I mean, this could be the biggest economic driver that uh, the country's seen in, you know, in a generation. And I think it, it's really about making sure that there's clean energy. It's making sure that we have the right policies in place, both at the federal level and the uh, provincial and territorial level. Mm-hmm. It's about making sure that the whole opportunity is grounded in uh, economic reconciliation with First Nation governments. First Nation governments need the opportunity to be uh, full partners in these projects, making sure that um, nations have an opportunity to take part in the build out and and uh, the opportunities for their community. So, um, you know, there's a number of pieces that have to come together. We were talking uh, this week with the federal government about policy. I have meetings uh, later today. But yeah, I mean, uh, earlier today I met with ambassadors from across the uh, EU, and most uh, conversations start with, um, you know, how are things in your um, uh, focus on reconciliation and. What are the critical mineral potentials? And of course, I think the uh, Yukon uh, boasts 25 of 31 critical minerals that are on Canada's list. So, so if this opportunity is seized upon, and it seems like the capital will be there because the need is there and the incentive is there, um, growth brings with it challenges. Yeah. And, and you've got a housing challenge and an affordable housing challenge. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what do you need to do to tackle that so you don't end up exacerbating social challenges and just having no place for people to stay? When they yeah, look, we've, been, we've been lucky. We've had one of the strongest economies um, in the country over the last half a decade. We've had the strongest uh, population growth. And so, um, you know, we have pressures on our healthcare system. We have pressures, again, on our uh, social systems. And we have pressures on housing. So um, what you really have to do is look five, ten years ahead um, and make sure that you're working with all the potential partners that you can. Uh, Our First Nation governments, both in 
our urban area in Whitehorse as well as our rural uh, parts of the Yukon um, have an opportunity to be partners with us. They have land that can be developed. We have to support them to de-risk those programs, to yeah. invest with them. Uh, you know, we started the morning off today very early sitting with uh, Minister Fraser to talk about uh, infrastructure and housing and uh, sort of what the new programs are going to look like, what the delivery models are going to be. So it's about uh, public-private partnership. It's about um, making sure that all players are at the table and, and really uh, it, it's about making sure as well that we have long-term investment. So later this week, um, Thursday, I'm in Toronto, uh, and that's focus on pension funds, REITs, others that maybe haven't played a role in the north right. with long-term investment, but now uh, the opportunity's there. It's a solid investment for them, and we need them deploying capital. Uh, uh, to the on the energy side or on the housing side? or both It's on the housing and, side, yeah. yeah. It's making sure that we have... Build rentals, that kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, build rentals. I mean, I think what we've seen across the country is investment into um, you know condominiums and single-detached, mm-hmm. but what we have haven't seen is a long-term view in the country where we have a large quantum of uh, rental housing in place. And we need that as a first step, especially for individuals that are coming into our territory to work in the healthcare field or the education field. Um, we need to have options for them. Last time we spoke was in September and you were in British Columbia. You were on your <laughs> way back from India and you were there when the Prime Minister made yeah. the, the allegation that India may have played a role yeah. in, in this uh, murder of yeah. Pradeep Singh Nijjar in, in British Columbia. Yeah. How do you feel about that experience now that we've seen these other allegations in the indictment in the United States that suggest this was part of a much larger plot? Yeah, I mean, I was in India and our f- key focus was um, trade. Uh, yeah, trade and also recruiting healthcare uh, mm. professionals. Uh, look, I, I'm in the role right now chairing the Western Premier's table uh, in Canada. We have sent a letter off to uh, the federal government requesting that the uh, CSIS Act um, have an amendment so that uh, premiers have the ability to get that information that they need um, when they're on the road, uh, as I was. So there's a, you know, it's, it's about the shock, right? Yeah, it's about problem solving uh, as we move forward. Um, when I think about what's happening now, look, it's a, uh, we don't want to see that happen in Canada. That's, that's not right that that's happened if it has. I mean, yes, mm-hmm. there's a legal process that still has to happen. We see what's happening with um, the investigation and the charges in the U.S. Uh, I think the important thing is we have to understand that there is a tremendous amount of um, folks that have moved from India that have come here. There's folks that have uh, come here and uh, made this um, a spot for their their next generation. And the Indian community contributes immensely to all assets or all facets of um, Mm -hmm. Canadian life. And uh, from a business-to-business perspective, there's so many ties. So we have to deal with that really uh, touchy subject, and we have to deal with it with the vigor that it needs to be dealt with. But at the same time, we have to understand that these relationships have to continue. Um, they're really important relationships. And I think about healthcare. I mean, premiers have made a decision to not um, go and recruit from each other's jurisdiction. Um, where are we going to find those folks? Mm-hmm. We're going to grow them at home, but we also have to look at places like India to find the right uh, talent that we need. UConn Premier, Raj Play. thanks so much for coming in. It's good to see you Pleasure. in person. Great to see you. Thank, Thank you. It is now day two of opposition parties calling for Greg Fergus, the Speaker of the House of Commons, to resign. They do have confidence uh, in Speaker Fergus. You know, we have a tradition in this place of when somebody apologizes that we accept that and we move on. The Speaker is supposed to go through a fragile process of maintaining its uh, neutrality, impartiality, and that, Mr. Fergus, failed. Our recommendation to the Standing Committee on Procedure and House Affairs will be to recommend to the House that the Speaker resign. 
Okay, so Speaker Greg Fergus is under fire over this video, which was played at the Ontario Liberal Convention this weekend. It was a tribute to outgoing interim leader John Fraser, and Fergus was filmed in the Speaker's office and in his Speaker's robes. Well, the Conservatives and the Bloc Québécois says that just shows Fergus cannot be trusted to be politically neutral and nonpartisan in the House of Commons, and all work in the House was stopped for a while today while MPs debated whether this issue should be sent to committee. Power Panel is going to talk about that. Vanguard Strategy CEO Michelle Cadario is here, as is Francoise Boivin, a former NDP MP and a political commentator. The CBC's Jason Markasoff is in Calgary, and here with me in studio, Kate Harrison is Vice Chair at SUMA Strategies. All right, Jason, first I want to start with you. Um, there's a lot of inside Ottawa. Rob Benzie called it Planet Ottawa when we were on last night. <laughs> Let me show you something that was posted on Twitter from Planet Washington. This is from uh, former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. It was my privilege to welcome House of Commons Speaker Greg Fergus to Capitol Hill this morning during Speaker Fergus's first official visit to Washington. So, he has two parties in the uh, House of Commons calling for him to resign. Pelosi also includes some photos of her visit with Fergus. Um, do, Jason, do you do that uh, when the House is debating your, your partisanship and your neutrality? Do you leave town? Do you go to Washington on, on a diplomatic kind of trip here? Uh, it's curious. I do wonder if he's if this was planned. Um, I don't know much about this. I don't know what reporting's been done on this about whether he's going to see the actual speaker, um, Mike Johnson, or any of the former speakers um, yeah. who are not of uh, you know the, the the equivalent of the Liberal Party in. Uh, in the states, uh, I'm not sure, but this is a tough spot for for the speaker. Um, I mean, we could be talking about Liz Trust levels of uh, tenure um, for him. Uh, you know, he as I was listening to some of the debate on this motion today, and both uh, the Block and the certainly Andrew Shear, the former speaker and a House mm -hmm. leader of the Conservatives, talks about how it, it's very challenging for a speaker who's supposed to be above reproach and the referee of all the parties uh, to do this when he doesn't have the confidence of uh, two of those parties that make up nearly a majority of uh, of the house um this is a, t a very tight and unfortunate spot uh it seems thus far that the liberals mm -hmm. are uh, defending him the ndp uh, who could be this pivotal kind of swing vote are uh you know very much deciding with a lot of the points that uh andrew Scheer and the bloc quebecois are making um, but not saying outright just yet that he needs to resign too um you know this i i, I don't know how this uh how this goes. Um, it could be quite a challenge for it to get better and easier uh, for him uh, because uh, knowing uh, what we've seen from the uh, Conservatives, certainly uh, relenting is not uh, part of their MO. <laughs> no, uh, Francoise, that is, that, is that is an accurate statement. They, they are, that party is not for relenting. Uh, but, you know, Francoise, I don't get the sense the New Democrats necessarily want Greg Fergus to go. They definitely wanted to go to Proc to come up with some guardrails uh, for the Speaker. Um, but, but what do you make of this? That, you know, he has to apologize on Monday, and then on Tuesday, he's in Washington, D.C. at a series of events. Uh, while we don't know where the vote is going to go, what they're going to say, what they're going to do, and while parties are calling for you to quit, does it seem like a good idea to leave town? Well, it, it, I was so wrong because I thought he was in his office thinking about all this and, and thinking, especially while I was listening to uh, uh, Vice Chair D'Entremont uh, uh, giving his ruling on the uh, first uh, question of privilege from uh, uh, Andrew Scheer. And, and I'm thinking, I wonder if the, the, the actual speaker should not just like step 
step back because I think I think uh, his his thing is cooked because he must be thinking before there's a decision maybe I should do the the right thing a bit like Anthony Rota and so close to the Anthony Rota episode don't let this become the center stage of everything and we know it doesn't take much uh, between a documentary and this I mean. This is nuts. It's a nut house. And I'm thinking he's reflecting on this. And then your researcher send us the picture. No, Mr. Fergus is visiting Washington. That's another movie in the making. I just, I just find that there's a disconnect somewhere. And how can you explain this by saying, I thought it was for a private party. Nothing's rings like a private little affair than a, a liberal convention, be it in Ontario. Um, so something is wrong here. Something is doesn't add up. And as for the NDP, they might want to go uh, through to the process, so bring it to prop. It'll be interesting to see with six liberals sitting there and six opposition members, uh, how it will uh, unfold. And the quicker, please, the better, because this cannot continue. Jeez. Well, Michelle, I don't know if this rises to the level uh, of what I mean, it doesn't rise to the level of what Anthony Rhoda went through. I mean, this was a, an error in judgment that has caused some problems. But but, the, you know, the real world consequence of this, you know, for ordinary Canadians is that the parliamentary agenda is now kind of derailed in dealing with mm-hmm. debate and votes about this. So like the grocery and mortgage measures the federal government is trying to pass is kind of delayed. The just transition legislation is debate, Ukraine free trade agreement, all of these things sort of get set aside while the Senate is now sending back uh, C-234, which is another carbon tax carbon. I mean, what kind of a situation does all of this put um, the government's agenda in and, and the speaker in? Well, there's no doubt that this kerfuffle is, um, is, not, is tying up everything. Yeah. I don't think that Canadians are watching. I think that it's actually another example of why there's so few Canadians that pay that much attention to what goes on in the House of Commons. That being said, there's consequential things that are, that are trying to get through, particularly before they, the House recesses for the fall. Um, and, uh, you know, um, the Speaker made uh, a series of, of uh, missteps and did some things that I would ne- wouldn't have advised. But in the end... You know, I think that the opposition is just trying to to rile this all up, and he walked into a bit of that kind of uh, partisan trap. Uh, you know, is it? If you look at it from you know thousand feet, is it so bad that that the speaker said said a goodbye to a a leader of a party um, uh, who was uh, stepping aside? You know, you you could make an argument for that if that became something that he did for all parties and of people of all of all partisan stripes. Fact, it was played at a, an Ontario Liberal Party uh, convention. Not a good look um, in his role. You know, it's. Yeah. Uh, I'm not trying to defend that part, but I think that if we take a big step back, this is not the Anthony Rota situation. No, not at all. No. It is not that consequential, and the and you know they're just going to be playing you know silly games uh in the house of commons now for uh, the next few days and, and slowing everything down so kate it is not the anthony rota situation uh by and a, i did a, say a, that by the way no 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 follows. Yeah. okay just in yeah. case i was uh, I, I was about to build on your point i was about to build on your point okay. but it does okay. follow the anthony rota situation as a wise person Thank said you. not that long ago and given that <laughs> context it feels like you really gotta dot the i's and cross the t's and that has not happened 
happened here. And deal with the consequences of the actions you've taken. Anthony Roda sat through a few days of extremely uncomfortable comments from, from his colleagues about uh, about the situation um, when the Ukrainian president was here, mm. and rightly so, and it, I'm sure it was probably some of the most difficult days of his parliamentary life, but he was there. Um, so, you know, you can call this a lack of judgment to, you know, have this video, to, to do it in ceremonial garb and to do it in the office. I think to now go to Washington, uh, take pictures with one of the most partisan individuals in the U.S. government, uh, that's not a lack of judgment, that's a lack of, of respect for the office. So uh, on the principle, I think that uh, the Conservatives are right here insofar as um, he has demonstrated that he's put partisanship over the office, and it's not a surprise because that is his background. He was the National Director of the Liberal Party, like he has very partisan roots. Uh, but the politics of this, bad for the government, huge distraction at a time when, to your point, they're trying to advance legislation. I'm running out of time. And uh, the Conservatives mm -hmm. uh, have been given a Christmas gift for their fundraising efforts. It's an Ottawa bubble issue, but it's the kind of thing that their base certainly would respond to, uh, and they're probably on track for one of their best fundraising years ever. This certainly helps that effort. So, so, so Jason, just on, on the legislative implications for this for the government. So, like, they were debating it today. They were debating it yesterday. There's going to be votes and debates and amendments and things like this tomorrow. So, it, it, you know, it, the, the, the issue is, is that there's only so much time left in the parliamentary calendar between now and the break, and there's legislation the government wants to get through. So they need to find some way to resolve this or invoke closure. And what's just happened now in the Senate is, is Bill C-234, uh, which is to extend the carve-out on the carbon tax to f uh, fuel heating for farmers, has passed in an amended form, which uh, exempts burn heating but extends the carve-out to grain drying. Very technical thing, which means this now has to go back to Parliament, which has already approved it in its earlier form. So when the Senate is ping-ponging legislation back that the House passed over the objections of the government, and now the Speaker has become a distraction and is stopping your legislative agenda, has the government lost control of its legislative agenda because of a series of factors that it hasn't been able to control. You can pretty easily make the argument that uh, th that it has. Um, there are a lot of things the government wants to do. And they'll say, you're, you're holding back this. Um, but it takes a government and, and a minority and a minority legislature takes uh, all parties to agree on uh, on what to do. And uh, if they can't, so they have to be extra careful. And uh, if you know, and also having this uh, nonpartisan Senate, um, that's a risk that they created. Uh, Justin Trudeau created with that. And well, occasionally that's going to come home to roost as well. Uh, Francois, do you think there's any buyer's remorse on, on, on unleashing the Senate at, at this point when you get to a minority situation and you're at the end of the, the third term? Oh, my goodness. I mean, <laughs> nothing comes easy. Eh? It's it's incredible. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be in, in Justin Trudeau's office right now. He must be saying, what the hell is going on? Even when we start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, something comes back. If it's not one thing that hits us, it's another one. Uh, whereas C-234, uh, all the other bills, now this question of the of the speaker, I mean... Boy, they must be looking forward to go uh, on, on, on the holiday vacation if they will have any, if they can get over that, uh, that uh, last drama. Nothing is going easy, but it would be so easy to just not do these stupid things. Uh, Michelle, how do you, you, you kind of, how do you deal with this uh, from, a, from a prime minister's office when the speaker's office is distant from you and the Senate has been set free independently, and now there's sort of this confluence of things jumbling together. 
Well, there's uh, there's not much you can do with your with you know on a, with a hands-on um, kind of uh, focus. You, there's no direction that you can give that uh, is going to be received and uh, and uh, and carried out. What you have to do is make the case for what you're trying to do for Canadians. That you are the elected. You know, you have the uh, you were forming a government because Canadians elected you to carry out your agenda. So you have to make your case for your agenda. You have to make the case about why it's in the best interest of Canadians for, you know, your legislation to go forward, for the Parliament to to actually um, uh, operate, uh, and you have to rise above all this petty partisanship. Uh, that is, I think, their answer, um, and I'm not going to pretend in any way that it's easy, uh, but that is actually the only course that they have. Yeah, okay, tough to argue for your agenda when you're struggling to advance the agenda. Yes, right. and it, there needs to be a little bit more message uh, discipline here and take a bit of a Doug Ford approach to some of these conflicts and issues management. Uh, you know, since day one, the Trudeau government's issue management approach has been, let's try to ride it out. We'll just give mm -hmm. it a couple more weeks and see what happens on everything, on SNC, on everything. That has always been their approach. Um, sever the limb to save the body. Like on something like this speaker issue, you've got a couple more weeks left. Uh, just deal with it and move on um, and bring it back to a focused narrative rather than these process stories which drag uh, the mm -hmm. conservatives taking advantage of, of kind of legislative maneuvers to extend the pain of this. But the liberals never do that from an issues management perspective. They just grip and grin and they hope for the best. But okay. if you drop the speaker, you lose another day of a uh, of session because you have to hire a new one. It's all, <laughs> it's all just wonderful. I know, I know. I, I mean, look, it, it's it's the spinal tap drummer of Parliament uh, at this point in time. All right, uh, we got to leave it there. I want to thank the power panel: Michelle Cadario, Francoise Bovin, Jason Markasoff, and Kate Harrison. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.